Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Chip Schooley, who is a professor of medicine at University of California, San Diego. He was the chief of ID um, at UCSD for many years and has really been a leader in uh, uh, HIV pathogenesis uh, research uh, in uh, antiretroviral development, hep C, influenza. He's a bit of a renaissance man and is taking uh, his uh, renaissance work into the world of the uh, microbiome um, and has been the co-chair of this course um, for many years. So uh, thank you, Chip, for continuing to raise new and interesting uh, topics at this course. We're looking forward to this. Thanks very much, Annie. It's great to be back with all of you all and uh, appreciate your patience. I uh, actually define Renaissance as ADD, but I appreciate the, um, the more charitable description of it. Um, Today I thought I would uh, try to just do an introductory talk uh, about the microbiome in HIV. It's an area that uh, I think we'll see increasing um, discussions about, and I think it's worth it's use, useful to understand a bit about some of the concepts underlying uh, the relationship between the microbiome and us and the rest of the world. Uh, as you've already seen from um, Dr. Smith's update about CROI, we're beginning to see uh, very good studies come out about the microbiome and its ability to uh, being manipulated. Uh, we manipulate it all the time every time we uh, prescribe antibiotics or probably eat chicken. Uh, so um, uh, I think that uh, it's uh, timely to be able to talk a bit about this. So uh, these are my disclosures, um, and we'll now move on to uh, discuss some things related to microbiome and its relationship to human health talk about some of the things that destabilize the microbiome, and talk about some of the issues related to HIV specifically. So let's start with a couple of definitions. Uh, we define the microbiota um, uh, as a community of, of um, pathogenic microorganisms that uh, live around us uh, and uh, live around in a given community. The human microbiome uh, is the collection of organisms that lives around us. They live uh, in our, on our skin, in our GI tract, virtually on every surface of the body. Uh, and uh, there are more of them than there are of us. If you count the cells uh, in a human, there are about 37 <coughs> trillion cells, and we're walking around with 100 trillion uh, microbiological uh, organisms. So we're kind of outnumbered three to one just sitting here uh, today. Uh, and um, we tend to focus on the one, uh, when in fact uh, there really is much more around us than we notice. So why is it that we're now just beginning to understand this? Well, one of the major issues is that until recently, the only way we could um, describe organisms is to grow them on agar uh, or in some uh, laboratory medium. And like anything else, you really only uh, see things under the lamppost where the light is. And when we take things that are growing in a complex uh, system like our GI tract, uh, not everything there will necessarily grow an auger by itself. Many of these organisms rely on each other to form a, a community. And in these kinds of settings, if you try to uh, grow them out as single organisms uh, on laboratory media, we miss them. So now uh, we have metagenomics, uh, which has allowed us to go directly to sequencing uh, to begin to understand what's there, whether we can grow it or not with our currently available technologies. The thing that has made this probably the most um, accessible has been the cost of sequencing has just uh, one of the few things in, in the planet that has decreased uh, over the course of the last few years. I guess you could say memory has decreased uh, 
particularly uh, in the leadership of our country, but uh, the cost of memory uh, uh, in bioinformatics has decreased, and both of these cost decreases have been essential uh, to the ability uh, to do the sorts of studies that we need to do to understand the microbiome around us. In the human genome, it, in fact, uh, costs as much to store the information as it does to generate it. So you could almost argue that every time you sequence someone, you throw the data away rather than spending the money to sequence it and sequence the patient again. But in the, in the uh, uh, cost per genome in general is down, and this massive ability to analyze data uh, has been really what, combined with the low cost, has given us the insights we have. The best handle we have on understanding the microbiome is 16S RNA. This is a region of RNA that uh, every uh, microbe has, uh, and it is a, um, uh, you can see a bunch of stems and loops, uh, but you can see there are also parts of this, of these stems and loops that are black, constant. They're very, very conserved across microbiome, uh, across all micro, uh, uh, of our microbiota. Uh, because they're the common features that allow these organisms to initiate um, uh, their metabolic processes. But there are variable regions in between, which is what gives them their identity. And so what we can do is use the constant regions uh, to uh, the conserved regions to uh, put together probes and primers for uh, amplification. And once we've amplified them, then use the variable regions to classify the organisms we have. And by looking at the, at the relationships uh, among the sequences we generate in the variable regions, we can then classify organisms into families and phyla. And this has really changed the way uh, we look at microbiology in general. Uh, and we found that a lot of things we thought were quite similar are really quite different when you go to the, to the uh, level of, the, of, the, of sequence diversity. And it's providing us both insights uh, into what grows around us and on us, and how they relate to each other. Now, the um, phylotype uh, is, is a um, term you'll hear a bit. And these are uh, 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 a group of sequences you put together uh, based on sequencing. Uh, another term you'll hear more often, which is why I've bolded, is the so-called operational taxonomic unit. This is, in some ways, analogous to what we used to call a species. Some of them are species, but they are not necessarily species as we currently have them, uh, have them uh, 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 defined. And they basically are uh, groups of organisms that share about 97 percent or more sequence um, commonality that allow us to put them into, the, uh, into these uh, operational taxonomic units. Metagenomics allows us to uh, take uh, very gross mixtures of bacteria uh, or other organisms and then barcode them and sequence them together. And then after you've done all the barcoding and, and deconvoluting it with the sequences, you can use bioinformatics to look at the entire population, a meta-analysis of everything that's in front of you. And this is what really has allowed us uh, to uh, jump from having to isolate one colony at a time uh, and then uh, laboriously uh, figure out what's in a sample. And this, again, lets us classify organisms in a much more uh, uh, quantifiable way than trying to classify what we grow, which is obviously very much biased by what we're trying to grow it on. And you can see that 
Uh, you can go all the way down from the domain uh, to the species using increasing levels of similarity uh, at the genetic level uh, to make these classifications. Now, there are a number of metrics that are used uh, to describe microbial communities, and the ones that we uh, use most often uh, have to do uh, with these four terms. Uh, richness, uh, which basically means how many different types of organizational taxonomic units does that population have. A rich uh, uh, microbiome would be one that has many different OTUs. A poor one would be one that has only one or two or a small number. And we think about, for example, in the GI tract, many, many uh, different OTUs making up a rich microbiome. And when we give my, uh, antibiotics, we narrow it. So uh, that's how this terminology has come along. Evenness has to do with when you look at the individual OTUs in a population, is there one that dominates it, and then you have a bunch of smaller ones along with it, or are there many of them that are kind of forming a, um, a more even distribution of, of uh, OTUs within the overall sequence. Dominance uh, is kind of an inverse of that term. If something uh, emerges, for example, you give someone antibiotics and all of a sudden they're overrun with C. difficile, C. difficile uh, can become dominant in the colon of someone who's on a long course of antibiotics in the hospital. And the diversity index is just a term that's used to calculate how diverse a population is, it's a mathematical term, uh, and it's based on uh, looking at um, uh, the um, a kind of a combination of one through three, and it's really a nice descriptive number that can let you compare one population to the other. Examples of low diversity uh, are uh, uh, people who are obese or have inflammatory bowel disease. Well, you find that their GI tracts have low diversity in the microbiome. Uh, high diversity is found, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, in, in women with bacterial vaginosis. And in this case, high diversity is associated with an unhealthy microbiome. So these terms are not always uh, reflective of the same thing depending on what uh, ecosystem you're trying to understand. Most of our understanding of this has come from a very large investment on the part of the NIH over the, about the last 15 years, the Human Microbiome Project, uh, that has sought to look at, to first to define the normal microbiome, and then to get a better idea about how the microbiome changes in health and disease. Uh, this has been uh, very much uh, like the Human Genome Project in the sense that it's included laboratories uh, really from all over the country and all around the world contributing sequences into massive databases that have gotten increasingly rich uh, and have provided us with more and more insights and tools to analyze data as they're generated in an accelerating way. The methods are pretty simple. Uh, in the first uh, microbiome project, uh, 300 healthy subjects uh, were uh, sampled at uh, two and a half dozen body sites, and uh, the specimens were then, uh, were then characterized and, uh, and uh, broken up uh, by body site. And if you look at the color codes, you can see uh, with each of the color codes kind of reflecting a different uh, group of organisms, you can see that depending on where you culture, in a given individual, the microbiome is quite different from place to place. So we are not just a single ecosystem, we're multiple ecosystems. And when you say, what is uh, Dr. Follinsby's microbiome, uh, you, you next want to say you're talking about what's in his nose uh, or what's in his ear. And if you look from place to place, 
uh, you can see that uh, it's quite different within Dr. Follinsby. But as I'll show you in a minute, if you compare uh, the organisms in, in his ear to the organisms in um, um, uh, Dr. Smith's ear, they'd be more, much more like each other than the microbiome in his ear would be to the microbiome in his armpit. So the interpersonal differences uh, are, uh, are really, in some ways, I'll show you in just a minute, less than you would expect if you look at the same anatomic site. Now, another way you'll often see the data uh, organized is uh, in a, um, a cluster graph like this. And you can see that the, the cluster graph uh, looks at the similarity among organizational taxonomic units. The color codes are showing you from, in each, indiv each, individ each one of these dots is from one patient. And it looks at how the organisms in that uh, dot relate to each other. And you can see that you can break down these, um, these samples and tell, in large part, with some overlap, where they came from. You can see that the uh, gastrointestinal uh, uh, OTUs are quite different um, from those that you would get uh, in the oral cavity. But they're more like each other if you look at a bunch of different people. So uh, the, um, the uh, microbiome uh, gets to be more and more understandable as you begin to look at it uh, from the standpoint of a family of families. Now, the last uh, thing I want to say about, uh, about the uh, microbiomic relationships have to do with diversity. If we just uh, look at, for example, the uh, left uh, component here, the urogenital samples, the gray uh, bars are the diversity if you sample, if you take the same sample and do this uh, and, and do metagenomic sequencing over and over again. So it'll tell you that if you take the same sample uh, and look at how different the same sample is when you, when you do what you think is the same thing, you can see you get slightly different results based on how the primers pick things up and how things are amplified. But you can see that if you then go and look uh, at the same person in the same place from week to week, there's more diversity there than if you just take the same sample and do it over and over again. And if you then look at different people in the same place, they differ a little bit more than the same person over and over again from the same place. So you're beginning to see that you can kind of get a stepwise uh, increase in diversity as you look over time and as you look between individuals. And so to summarize and look at the same data in kind of a in slightly different way, um, if you, uh, uh, each of these uh, clusters uh, of four bars is an anatomic site, uh, back, nose, uh, the bottom of the foot. And each of these, uh, the first bar here and the first bar here and the first bar here are the same person. And you can see that if you look at the color coding, the, this looks more like, they look more like each other person number one, two, three, and four, if you look at just what's uh, in uh, the antecubital fossa or in the back, then if you look in person number one from the antecubital fossa to the back, which something I've already told you. But this is just another way to look at data the same uh, uh, in terms of similarity among uh, microbiomes from person to person, and an important concept as we think about differences in health and disease. So to kind of... Um, Summarize this part of the talk. Uh, the microbiome uh, is uh, established early in life. We are born uh, more or less sterile. Uh, if you come through the uh, uh, 
vaginal delivery, uh, your microbiome is quite different from a cesarean delivery, and that imprint stays with you for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of work going on now trying to understand how much uh, the uh, uh, cesarean sections affect early uh, uh, composition of the microbiome and whether that has long-term effects on the health of the, uh, of the human. Uh, the microbiome uh, is also uh, uh, an important part of our metabolism because when we eat something, what we're eating, they're eating. And depending on what bugs you have in your GI tract, they can break down food in different ways to either make it easier or harder for you to get on, uh, get on to what they metabolize. So if you look at people who are heavier, the microbiomes that they carry in their GI tract uh, are more able to metabolize food in general in a way that humans can absorb it. And as I'll show you in a minute, you can actually uh, take sterile animals, sterile mice, and reconstitute the GI tract of newborn mice with the microbiome from fat mice, and they become fat. You do the same thing with skinny mice, and they become skinny if you feed them the same thing. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of interest, of course, uh, as you might imagine, on the part of people who are always trying to sell us things to make us fatter or skinnier. I've spent millions of dollars. It doesn't work. Um, the, uh, to try to think about how to change the microbiome to affect weight. Uh, that's obviously something that uh, would sell very well at general nutrition centers. Uh, another thing that we'll show you is that uh, we drastically affect the microbiome uh, when we uh, use antibiotics. Uh, in animal models, uh, which are easier to control than humans, uh, when you um, touch them with antibiotics early on in life, uh, you make their, uh, you change their GI tract in a way that uh, moves them toward the so-called fat GI microbiome. This is one of the reasons why uh, farmers are always wanting to give uh, a 17th generation cephalosporin to every chicken that comes through, uh, because it helps them grow. Uh, and uh, it's one of the reasons that we uh, end up as humans being exposed to antibiotics is this effort uh, to change the microbiome of chickens. We don't yet know how that affects us, but you can imagine that as the microbiomes are passed from person to person, it's having an effect on the human microbiome as well. Um, and there's some work going on now looking at early exposure to antibiotics in children, uh, otitis media and things when they're young, to see how it affects their growth uh, through childhood. Uh, Marty Blazer and others are working on that, and it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, when you stop antibiotics, the microbiome tries to get back to where it started, but it's like many complex systems. It goes back in the direction that it came from, but never quite gets there. And the uh, extent to which it can get back to where it began depends to some extent on how um, broad the antibiotics are in their activity and how long someone was on them. So let's now move to talk about the gut itself. Um, there are four uh, uh, major uh, phyla in the gut. Uh, the so-called uh, firmicutes uh, are really, they're called that because they have firm, uh, uh, gram, uh, firm uh, cell walls, uh, i.e. they're mainly gram-positive organisms. These are the really, uh, these are the ones that are really quite good at metabolizing food uh, to uh, help us absorb the, the calories better. And then there are three other uh, uh, phyla that we see uh, quite often as well. And these four phyla are what you'll often see um, characterized when people look at the major phyla in the GI tract. As I've already said, uh, we start 
shaping our microbiome early in life. Uh, in fact, our, our mothers do. Because when they take antibiotics, uh, their microbiome changes as well, and we get most of what we get from our mothers. Uh, at least that's what my mother kept telling me. Uh, it's true from the microbiologic perspective as well. If her microbiome is altered, we start out with an altered microbiome, both from the standpoint of the uh, uh, going through the birth canal and from the standpoint of our intimate relationships with our mothers through what uh, uh, we get through breastfeeding, uh, uh, in terms of passive immunity uh, and in terms of our constant exposure to our mothers uh, over the course of the first few weeks and months of life. Now, some of the most interesting experiments that have been done uh, to try to understand how we reconstitute uh, the microbiome are done in these notobiotic or germ-free uh, uh, murine studies. And in these, you essentially take mice that are sterile, uh, let them give birth to sterile pups, uh, and then you can choose, you can do what you want to, uh, to the pups to reconstitute their microbiome using, for example, uh, the uh, microbiome from heavy people or skinny people, uh, and then watching what happens to the animals, feeding the, them the same food, controlling everything else, and letting the microbiome uh, be uh, the variable. And as I've already uh, alluded to, uh, if you take uh, mice, that are born and are exactly the same at birth. They're all sterile. They're uh, syngenic. Uh, they have the same genetic composi composition. You feed them the same thing, and you give them uh, a microbiome from a, a normal rat, uh, a fat rat, or a skinny rat. They grow up the same way. And this is all really being generated uh, by, uh, the, uh, by the uh, impact of the, um, of the microbiome. You can also take, the, uh, take mice and give them antibiotics and move them in the obese direction in terms of their ability to reconstitute. But if you do this to mice that don't have a GI microbiome, in other words, you, you keep them sterile, the antibiotics don't have an effect. So the antibiotic effect is mediated through the, uh, through the microbiome itself, not direct effects of the antibiotics. But these have been very elegant systems in which to study the microbiome. And the same thing is true in humans, as I've, uh, as I've said. Uh, the, uh, as you uh, diet, the uh, other uh, organisms, the non-firmicutes, uh, 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 the ones that don't uh, metabolize as well, grow up. Uh, this is kind of the heavy microbiome of becoming skinner, skinnier. We've already kind of been through this, and we're now going to move on and talk a little bit about some of the issues with, uh, with HIV infection. This is a uh, body of, 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 of knowledge that's growing rapidly, and I'm not going to try to do a comprehensive review of this uh, because we could be here all day, and we need to put something in our GI tracts at noon. So one of the first studies to do this, to look at this, was a, a study, a very nice descriptive study that was published now about five years ago which is almost ancient history in terms of how technology uh, has changed. But this is a group of, of HIV-infected, non-infected people who were undergoing elective colonoscopy, mainly for cancer screening, and samples were taken uh, from various levels of their colon. Uh, the patients in the controls were age and sex matched. Those, the HIV-infected people, uh, were re reasonably immunologically intact. Most of them were uh, biologically suppressed, and those who weren't, uh, the four who weren't, had a mean 
uh, RNA level of 1,700 copies. So for all intents and purposes, these were well-controlled uh, patients, uh, HIV-infected people. And I haven't shown you a graphic that looks like this, but this is another way of looking at the, the richness or the diversity um, of, uh, of a population. As you increase the number of sequences and you begin to look at uh, how many different uh, species show up, the steeper this curve is, uh, the richer the population is. You can see that if you look at HIV-infected people, they have a narrower, um, in this, in this uh, study, they had less diversity in their GI tract uh, than the healthy controls uh, that they're compared to. Now, this is an easy one. We're going to spend the next four hours going over each bar. <laughs> but uh, the main reason I'm showing you this is here what has been done, the same samples have been taken and color-coded at, 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 um, at, a, at, a, at the level of the species. And you can see that if you look at the color codes, you can see these look different from these. The healthy controls look different from the HIV samples. And what that's telling you is at the species level, what's here is a bit different as well. Uh, it's not just the diversity is different. There are different species there. When you begin to drill down on it, you can see that if you look, for example, at bacteroides and in healthy individuals, there tend to be more bacteroides in the healthy controls than in HIV-infected people, uh, more clostridia in the controls than HIV-infected people, and conversely, uh, more uh, enterobacteriaceae in HIV-infected people and more campylobacter in, in HIV-infected people. There are you can go through the entire microbiome and look at this. Some are the same, some are different. But there are some commonalities between the two populations that, uh, that uh, uh, show the effects of, of um, HIV infection that we're still trying to understand. Now, some of this may be due to changes in the innate uh, and adaptive immune response at the level of the GALT. Remember, the GALT is one of the first organs to get attacked during acute HIV infection. Some of them may be because of antibiotics for pneumocystis prophylaxis and other things. Uh, but uh, we do know that there seem to be differences in the uh, microbiome uh, of, of HIV-infected and uninfected individuals. And there have been some studies trying to look at the progression of the microbiome um, over time as the HIV immunodeficiency uh, progresses, uh, some, of, some of it suggesting that some of the more, um, some of the organisms are more associated with inflammation are enriched as the immune response declines. Now, this is another uh, graphic of the same data, again, showing you that uh, if you just allow uh, basically AI to come up with a dendrogram to look at uh, its similarity among uh, the, um, uh, the uh, organisms found uh, in uh, the uh, HIV-infected and uninfected people, what you come up with is you can see that the blue is uninfected, the red is infected, quite different. Uh, uh, metrics in terms of these two measures of population differences. And so overall, uh, there were several different uh, species that were found more often in HIV-infected people, some of which we uh, expect to see uh, are associated with disease. So what kinds of issues do we think might be affected, um, uh, uh, might be going on that would influence the course of HIV disease? Uh, in the microbiome. We've already talked about how the microbiome relates to each other uh, in terms of individual organisms. This is the basis for C. difficile. Uh, we come in and wipe out everything but C. difficile and it grows up. Um, the, the microbiome is also important from the standpoint of barrier, of the barrier maintenance. It helps us grow mucus in the GI tract. 
the microbiome is constantly kind of talking uh, to the GALT and affects the uh, level of inflammation. There has been, for the last decade, a lot of work done in which people have tried to look at the, um, uh, whether or not uh, translocation of, of gut um, uh, bacteria uh, components across the GI tract have an impact on inflammation. And nutrient utilization is also important. We've already talked about fatness and, and uh, thinness. Now, Dr. Smith earlier today talked about this study. This is the Promaltia study. Uh, it actually was accepted in CID earlier this week, so I can now show you this is the secret sauce. And what's in the secret sauce, is, is, as Dr. Uh, Smith said, are mainly uh, fatty acids uh, and carbohydrates. But it's not just a prebiotic to help the bacteria grow in the way you want them to. It also is a probiotic and includes Saccharomyces. They composed this by looking at the literature uh, that had been in the, uh, published in the past about um, efforts to change the microbiome and included everything they could come up with in this little secret sauce. So they, they essentially went to studies that have been done in not so good a way in the past that have claimed that you could change the microbiome, put them all in one thing, and compared it to placebo with skim milk. And as you saw, uh, no difference in CD4, eight cell, CD4 cells and CD8 cells. Uh, and there was no difference uh, in the uh, microbiome diversity. So Dr. Smith said they were analyzing this. Uh, this. They now have, have analyzed it. And what they've shown here is by doing everything we know how to do so far, changing prebiotics, probiotics, they could not change the microbiome. So the test of whether or not you can affect the uh, HIV immune reconstitution by changing the microbiome hasn't really been concluded because the measure didn't change the microbiome. There's still more work to be done, but why this study was good is they did it the right way. Placebo-controlled, blinded, and followed over 48 weeks. So when you see these studies that uh, try to sell you a secret sauce, the studies need to be done this way to be able to interpret them. Okay, I'm going to close now and say a few words about the vaginal microbiome. Uh, this will overlap with some of the things that you've already heard, but I think it also uh, raises uh, the issue about how important this is how important this is from the standpoint of, the, of transmission, because I think this is the dimension of the microbiome that we're going to be most likely to be able to change, at least over the short and midterm, that may have an impact on HIV uh, transmission and other aspects of the disease. Now, the vaginal microbiome uh, tends to be quite stable over time from within any individual person, as the microbiome does from a given anatomic site. This looks like a complicated slide, but it really isn't. Uh, these are individual women whose vaginas were sampled in five different time points uh, close together over the course of a week or two. Uh, and then uh, the number of each of these different uh, organisms was tested, was, was, was quantified at each visit. And you can see that uh, if, if you look at this woman, she had um, uh, the number one here. This lactobacillus was present all the way through, uh, and this one never was present. So you can see when you look at this, for the most part, uh, a given woman uh, would either have uh, this lactobacillus or this one plus this one, uh, but very few. Uh, but when they had uh, what they had on visit one, tended to be uh, quite constant throughout. The um, when you look at another group of women who developed bacterial vaginosis, the red boxes in each individual woman. Uh, it was the first visit during which bacterial vaginosis was discovered, you can see these don't look quite as homogeneous as the previous ones do. 
And there's some women uh, who began to see, for example, uh, things that weren't present began to be present uh, after, uh, after this red box shows up. Uh, with this development of bacterial vaginosis, more diversity is coming along with less and less of the lactobacilli. So what we see with bacterial vaginosis is the healthy state in a woman's vagina is a lactobacillus-dominated microbiome. With bacterial vaginosis arrives, there's much more diversity. Gardnerella is very important, as I'll show you in just a minute. Now, we'll go right quickly uh, to um, the, uh, a couple of studies that have looked at bacterial vaginosis and uh, the impact on uh, HIV uh, uh, acquisition. This is a very nice study published earlier this year uh, in which a group of women who had been being followed uh, for uh, HIV seroconversion uh, had vaginal microbiomic studies done um, prior to seroconversion. And what you can see is the controls, the, the women who did not become infected during this period of time, and they were pretty well matched by behavior and other things, were the lactobacillus dominated uh, in terms of their microbiome. You can see this kind of uh, diverse microbiome with less lactobacillus in the people who seroconverted. So at least there's evidence here that this, that this uh, microbiomic uh, healthy signature was associated with protection from being infected in this prospective study. And this is another measure of this. Uh, this is the, uh, a uh, diversity index. Uh, the low means non-diverse. You can see the women who did not become uh, uh, infected, uh, were much more likely to be here at the, at the homogeneous end of the spectrum, and there was a more, uh, uh, more spread to, toward more diversity in the women who became infected. And when you look more closely at this, there are specific uh, bacterial species in this very complicated uh, study that were more associated with transmission. As more studies are done like this, uh, it'll be very interesting to see if these same species turn up uh, and turn out to be risk for uh, infection, and what are the things we can do about this uh, in, in terms of uh, protecting women. Now, the last thing I'll talk about is the mi vaginal microbiome in PrEP. We've heard a little bit about this already today, uh, but a lot of this was brought up by the fact that topical PrEP uh, didn't seem to work uh, as well as people thought it would. People thought it'd be a slam dunk if you put it on uh, and allow uh, TDF to get absorbed uh, in the target tissues, why wouldn't it work? Well, for a long time, people said, well, it's because the women just don't adhere. But more recently, uh, their, Nikki Klatt and her colleagues uh, have come up with another hypothesis that uh, uh, is, uh, I think, a quite interesting one. You heard a little bit about this already uh, from uh, Dr. Bookbinder. Uh, and what Dr. Klatt uh, noticed is that when you look at the Caprisa study, which is the topical TDF study, you can see this is another uh, one of the uh, uh, microbiome diversograms we've been seeing. Uh, the only way you don't see the difference here is if you're colorblind. Uh, these are uh, women who have um, a microbiome with this uh, dominance of lactobacilli. These are the women with the high diversity microbiomes uh, with bacterial vaginosis with a lot of Gardnerella. And when you look at the ability of PrEP to work, the lactobacillus women PrEP worked, and the women who uh, had this non-lactobacillus dominant uh, microbiome, the one on the right, PrEP did not work. 
So what Nikki then did was to look at uh, the organisms that made up this, um, this microbiome, in particular Gardnerella. And in this experiment, what she did was she took Gardnerella, the organism itself, and put it in with cells uh, that, um, uh, in which HIV would grow, and then incubated uh, these uh, in, uh, uh, just in tissue culture to see what happened to tenofovir. Tenofovir in tissue culture is quite stable. Uh, when you put it with cells, the cells will take it up. But when you put it uh, with uh, Gardnerella uh, and, and, and lactobacillus, you can see uh, th there is some uptake with the, with the cells. And it's not affected by lactobacillus. But when you put Gardnerella vaginalis here, the tenofovir is gobbled up and goes away more rapidly. Now, what's going on here? The metabolism, uh, tenofovir is being broken down into adenine. And this is only happening uh, in the cultures that included Gardnerella vaginalis. So her hypothesis was that Gardnerella was metabolizing tenofovir before it could get into the cells and protect the cells from becoming infected with HIV. Uh, and uh, this uh, was the uh, argument she was making about why topical PrEP did not work here. Uh, this shows you that if you look at what happens inside these cells, the way tenofovir works uh, in, um, in vivo is that tenofovir is taken up, and then two phosphate uh, molecules have to be put on its tail to become the active, um, the active um, metabolite that uh, works inside the cell. And you can see that uh, when you do this and follow uh, over the course of an hour, it gets rapidly taken up by cells, and inside the cells you find lots of diphosphate unless you have Gardnerella vaginalis present. So the Gardnerella vaginalis is converting it to adenine, and it's not getting into the cells and being activated. Now, the same thing uh, she showed at Croy uh, is happening with depivirine. It also uh, uh, seems to be uh, being metabolized uh, in these um, uh, in these uh, 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 in these um, uh, more diverse um, microbiome uh, women. And the point really here is not to go from sample to sample, but just to add the fact that we have to start thinking now about the microbiome in some of our biological interventions and whether it might be having an impact on the outcomes that we see. Now, I want to, uh, you saw this as well, and I want to just show this slide to make the point. This does not have any uh, uh, implications for oral prep. All right, so in summary, um, we live uh, with an immense uh, array of organisms around us. They change over time, affected by a lot of things. And we're only beginning now to think about uh, how to uh, change the microbiome. Uh, we're also still trying to understand what's cart and horse. Uh, there are a lot of associations that, we, uh, that people have uh, depicted. It isn't until you begin to um, uh, unravel those that you can understand how they relate to each other. Uh, can we alter the microbiome? We are, we've been doing that since antibiotics came along, uh, like with the elegance of a meat cleaver. Uh, usually it's for, uh, to our disadvantage with C. difficile. Uh, we know that people who uh, take antibiotics may be more likely to pick up uh, enteric diseases when they, uh, because the competition isn't there. We've talked about prebiotics and probiotics. The best example so far uh, in clinical medicine is fecal transplantation being done for C. difficile. Obviously, that's a bit um, uh, gross in a lot of ways in terms of the elegance of it, uh, but companies are beginning to try to understand what it is 
and create spore-containing, uh, uh, sporulated um, components of this and providing something a little bit more elegant than fecal transplants uh, in the same setting. And finally, uh, there may be ways to go in with a much more um, um, uh, directed approach and just, for example, kill C. difficile with uh, approaches that uh, could target them uh, with uh, uh, agents like bacteriophage. So I went over here, I apologize, uh, but um, uh, the good news is we're still ahead of time. So let's stop here. Thanks very much. Well, the, the, the positive control is going to be Trump's microbiome, uh, but we, 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 he's, he's, he's tall. We haven't found any, uh, anybody willing to actually be the control uh, recipient of that, but so uh, that, that, that study won't be done. At this point of, in time, there's really no evidence that they help or hurt. Um, the only thing that the, the only evidence of damage has to do with the pocketbook because a lot of people spend a lot of money on them. And uh, the other damage would be if they're doing that instead of something else, like taking antiretroviral drugs. Uh, so uh, I think uh, it's like a lot of things you see at General Nutrition Center. You have to think about what's being displaced um, when people come in and say they want to do it. But it's hard to say that yogurt and other things hurt people. Um, They do, uh, but we don't know uh, to what extent uh, that changes things in, for example, HIV infection or others. Um, and what about race effects on the vaginal microbiome? And might, you know, we've seen that, that black women are at higher risk of heterosexual transmission. Is part of this due to the vaginal microbiome? Possibly. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. What about um, diverse microbiomes in HIV positive versus negative women? Um, does that affect um, STD acquisition? The kinds of studies you need to do to, to understand that really do need to be done. Uh, the HIV study you've seen was really nicely done because it was being done already for other reasons. But a really nice study in an STD uh, clinic sort of setting would be really important to do. And you've told us that the microbiome is different in HIV positive and negative patients, and one thought is maybe they're getting different antibiotics. So what about sexual practices? Um, might that play a role here? One thing I didn't get into is when you look at um, the, um, some of the, um, uh, uh, there are inflammatory markers that, that appear in this bacterial vaginosis microbiome, and some of that's affected uh, by whether or not there is uh, semen present in the vault at the time you do the sampling. So it seems to be that there is an interaction uh, with, uh, and you don't see that when someone's had um, sex associated with condoms. So the semen does seem to have an effect on the microbiome in women. We don't know about other kinds of sexual practices that may be more traumatic or have other uh, effects, but certainly sex, both by virtue of, of being exposed to someone else uh, and by virtue of some of the things that seem to be in uh, uh, seminal fluid, uh, among others, uh, does seem to affect the microbiome. Absolutely right. Yep. Yep. Um, so, does being a vegetarian alter the microbiome? Um, I have not seen studies, but I would expect that they would, uh, unless people are putting uh, third-generation cephalosporins in the celery. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, so, so, how come they could change the 
microbiome, but not the human. The mice are starting out sterile, so they're starting out with nothing to compete with it. And um, uh, the people in this study had had thir 35 or 40 years to get their microbiome established. And someone wanted to know how they got them into the mice, the, the pre and probiotics into the mice. I'm assuming ate the bugs or whatever. Into the mice or into the? Into the mice. Yeah. They basically feed mice. You can feed mice uh, ad lib in these in these sterile cultures, the, in these sterile rooms. These notobiotic um, uh, experiments that get done are really for obsessive compulsive people uh, in terms of what you have to do to even maintain a notobiotic room. But once you do that, you can really do a lot within these uh, within these chambers. And then, how does this microbiome research affect us thinking about neonatal HIV acquisition? You know, that's a great question, and uh, I think that um, uh, there are other issues uh, with cesarean section, for example, in vaginal delivery people have looked at for a long time. But like many other things, antiretrovirals are such a dominant, uh, have such a dominant impact on HIV transmission that that's where the, uh, the money needs to be right now. And I just want to give you a chance to drive this point home once more because someone asked, well, gosh, if someone has Gardnerella, do we have to treat vaginosis before we just prep or else it won't work? Oral prep works, um, and it's topical prep that uh, is affected by it, so that's fine. Other reasons to treat bacterial vaginosis, but not necessarily this. All right. Thank you. Thank you so All right. Much. Okay.